Good morning, and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. We're your hosts. I'm Abby. And I'm Erica. Today, we are going to be telling you guys part one about Richard Chase. So grab yourself some coffee and let's dive in. We will continue on with our content for this week's episode shortly, but first we wanted to take a moment to let you know about an opportunity to listen to even more Crime Over Coffee content. By signing up for our Patreon, you can receive ad-free episodes and additional content. To check out this opportunity and sign up for the Crime Over Coffee Patreon, visit www.patreon.com slash crimeovercoffeepod. Thank you again for all of your support. Okay, before we get started on this episode, Eric and I want to give you all a warning. Um, it is a very violent one. It's something Eric and I didn't realize how violent it was going to be when we decided to cover the case. It's a lot, um, and I just want to give anybody a heads up. It deals with a lot of very violent crimes against people, children, and some animals as well. And so we want to let you guys know, just in case, maybe if that stuff bothers you, maybe skip these this episode in part two. Um, but again, just a heads up and just for a little, you know, tidbit of what's to come. He was known as the vampire killer of Sacramento. And I think that probably gives you a little bit of insight as to what's going to be coming. So as always, thank you for listening to our podcast. But again, if you want to skip this one because it's too much. We will not be upset. We're not offended because we're sitting here stalling, trying to decide if we even record it. (laughs) Richard Trenton Chase was born on May 23rd, 1950 in Santa Clara County, California. At a young age, Richard was physically abused by his father and his mother. Um, I saw mixed reports, honestly, about if it mainly came from his father, if it mainly came from his mother, or what kind of abuse he necessarily endured. One thing that was noted was that possibly the abuse that he was suffering was things that were considered normal back in the 50s. So things like just smacking your kid or spankings or like a slap on the hand with a ruler. Like those were things that were allowed back in the 50s and 60s even. So not saying that that's not abuse. However, it may not have been full-on beatings, and it may have just been things that were accepted as a norm back then, which is why he was never removed from his parents' home. As a child, Richard's parents also were known to violently argue with each other, and he unfortunately had to witness a lot of the violence between his parents, which I'm sure was pretty traumatizing for a child to just constantly be involved in that. They did eventually end up divorcing and splitting up, I saw in a couple of reports that he was kind of used as a bargaining chip almost during the divorce. Mom would use him for certain aspects of it and dad would use him for certain aspects of it. So so it wasn't really a great situation for him, not only because his parents were divorcing, but because he was genuinely just stuck in the middle of the two of them acting like children. I did see a report that when Richard was left alone in the house as a child, he would turn the heat up to like 100 degrees or like as high as it could get, which one, first off, sounds terrible. I would hate every second of that. 
remove all of his clothes, lie on the floor, and just, like, lay there in the heat, sweating. It was also around this time that Richard started to worry about not having enough blood in his body, which I think is a really odd thing for, like, a child to worry about. This was prior to age 10 or around age 10 that he started to think about that. I just, I don't think that that's a typical thing for a preteen child to worry about. No, and, you know, it's something interesting that I I do wonder if that um, is, like, a common kind of, like, I don't know if phobia is the right word or what have you, but that if that's something that other people have like this um, belief for one reason or another, you know how there's all these different phobias. I wonder if that is something as well that occurs in more than just, you know, Richard. This was later on in life, but he was diagnosed with hypochondria. So I'm wondering if it was kind of a part of that. So if you don't know, hypochondriac is basically the fear of diseases or the fear of being sick. So a lot of times somebody with this diagnosis will see certain things and in their mind, they will assume that they're sick for one reason or another. So this may have just been presenting itself at a younger age where he was just afraid of being sick. So he just in his mind thought that he just didn't have enough blood in his body. So he was sick for some reason. I also, I don't know, like, because he's so young, I almost feel like there had to have been some sort of circumstance as a child that would have made him feel like he didn't have enough blood in his body. Like maybe he had seen a family member go through some medical condition where they didn't have enough blood or maybe, I don't know, his parents had randomly told him that he just didn't have enough blood in his body because at such a young age that it seems odd that it would have came from his own mind. Sure. And as you all will find out as you listen to these episodes, that's something he really fixates on is blood. And so That's a really good point. I wonder if there was some type of triggering event that we just don't know about that caused this. Yeah, there was nothing that I found in his early life that pointed to that necessarily. That's just kind of me making an assumption. However, by the age of 10, Richard was showing signs of all three parts of the McDonald triad. So if you don't know what the McDonald triad is, it's basically a test that's done to determine sociopaths or to determine like a tendency for violence so there's three parts of it and if two of the three parts are present in an individual it means that there's a higher tendency for violence in them but for him he was showing signs of all three and the three parts of the triad are bedwetting pyromania which is just setting fires and zoosadism which is cruelty towards animals Later on, when the neighbor was interviewed, the neighbor had stated that she remembered lots of cats going missing from the neighborhood while Richard was living around there. She doesn't know exactly how many. She just remembers there were a lot of missing animals. As a teenager, Richard was very involved with drugs, mainly marijuana and LSD. He was also very much into alcohol. It was also reported that at this age, he started suffering from erectile dysfunction because of psychological problems from his anger. I did also see that as he got a little bit older, so high school years, he learned that in order to get aroused and to have an erection, you had to, it was basically the process of blood rushing through your body. And because he thought that he didn't have enough blood, he was worried that he wouldn't be able to experience that pleasure later on in life. So he started kind of fixating on that. And that was a concern of high school aged Richard. So, so far at play, we have, 
you know, some abuse, some sociopathic tendencies, and this fixation on blood that keeps coming up and coming up. Yes. This is the time when he gets diagnosed with hypochondria. It was believed that the hypochondria diagnosis kind of came from his drug and alcohol abuse. However, we were seeing that, remember, before age 10, prior to him even abusing drugs and alcohol, which is part of the reason, too, why I wonder if maybe that fixation on blood started elsewhere. Yeah, that's a good point. Something else that's weird is that Richard would complain that his heart would stop beating. He would also tell people that somebody had stolen his pulmonary artery. I don't think that's how that works. <laughs> yeah, I I don't think so either. I think it was just all part of like the hypochondriac disease. But he did try to kind of help, I guess. He there were a couple other things. So he um, would rub oranges on his forehead, believing that the vitamin C would be absorbed by his brain. And so he thought he was like helping his body. He also somewhere along the way decided that his cranial bones had split apart. And that they were shifting underneath his skull or underneath his skin and like changing places. So at one point he shaved his head so that he could monitor where the bones were at and see how much they were moving. When Richard was about 21 years old, he ended up moving out of his mother's house. He developed this illusion that she was attempting to poison him. And so he felt like he needed to get away. So when Richard moved out, he rented an apartment with some friends and... Once he moved in, he immediately boarded up his door to his bedroom and used an escape hatch through his closet to, like, come in and out of. And he said that he did this so that nobody could sneak up on him, which is odd. His roommates also complained that Richard was constantly intoxicated either from marijuana, alcohol, or LSD. He frequently would walk around the apartment nude, even if they had friends over... And so his roommates were finally like, you have to move out, dude. And he's like, no, I'm not moving out. So the roommates were like, fine, you're weird. We're leaving. And they moved out. That's how you know it's bad. Yeah, like. Like they all left. (laughs) And I can't imagine like, you know, there's always that like, you know, everybody's got a bad roommate story. But that is just like, uh, I can't even imagine having friends over and your weird roommate walks out naked. Like, just. No, absolutely not. I don't blame them for moving out since he wouldn't listen it and move out like they had asked. And it wasn't like they didn't have reasoning for asking him to move out. It was very clearly he was not an ideal yeah. roommate. After Richard's roommates moved out, he obviously had the apartment to himself. So he started to capture animals and bring them into the apartment and he would disembowel them and then eat the animals. He claimed that he was doing this because it was to help prevent his heart from shrinking. Richard eventually couldn't afford to live there anymore because he was living by himself. So he ended up moving back home. But pretty quickly after he moved back home, his father ended up giving him rent for a new apartment so that he would move back out and go into an apartment. It was reported that at this time he had no social life, no girlfriend. He pretty much just stayed to himself and did a lot of the things that we've already previously covered in this episode. In 1975, around the age of 25 years old, 
Richard was hospitalized for blood poisoning. This was after he had injected himself with blood from a rabbit he had killed. The patients and nurses at the hospital said that they were really frightened of him. They had kind of been referring to him as Dracula because not only had he injected himself with blood from a rabbit, but he would frequently be covered in blood on his face. He always said it was after he was shaving and had accidentally cut himself. But they also had found him biting the heads off of birds and sucking their blood. So with all of these issues kind of happening at the same time, they ended up diagnosing Richard with paranoid schizophrenia. They had prescribed him a medication. And in 1976, he ended up escaping from the hospital for a little while. They did end up catching him. And at this time, they sent him to a hospital for the criminally insane. This was where they saw a lot more of his vampire tendencies. I'm not going to go into any more details. I've already talked enough about what he did to animals. That's pretty much what happened here as well. He also would talk with inmates there about his fantasies regarding blood. And they also referred to him as Dracula in this hospital. He went through many different treatments over the months that he was in this hospital. He was officially released in late 1976 after he was declared to no longer be a threat to society. So he ended up going back to just his normal life. I did see that his mom kind of influenced the hospital to let him out, basically saying like, I'm going to take care of him, let him out. He's totally fine. He's not a concern to society. It'll be okay. And then immediately after letting him out of the hospital, his mom ended up taking him off of the antipsychotic medication that he had been prescribed because she felt like it wasn't helping. Oh, well, if it wasn't helping, then he should have still been in there and he wasn't better. After he was released from the hospital, he went right back to his vampire tendencies. So he would catch neighborhood pets and drink their blood. It was reported that at one point he called one of his neighbors and basically in detail described the horrific things that he had done to his dog. That's almost like even getting to another level of like a sadistic tendency. Yeah, it's almost like a bragging kind of thing at this point and just shows how much he doesn't have remorse for the things that he's doing. Yeah, F this guy. A year later, Richard was found in a field near Lake Tahoe, Nevada. He was naked and covered in cow's blood. They ended up reporting this incident, but nothing was done about it and nothing ever came out of it. It wasn't until December 29th of 1977 when Richard actually committed his first murder. 51-year-old Ambrose Griffin was outside of his house in Sacramento and honestly just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. So Richard drove by and as he did, he fired a 22 caliber pistol in Ambrose's direction and ended up hitting Ambrose, killing him. When police were called to the scene, they were able to find casings from the 22 caliber pistol at his house. However, they weren't able to determine who the suspect was, so they were still looking for any information that could lead to an arrest. Less than a month later, on January 11th, 1978, 
Richard ended up approaching the door of a woman named Jeannie Layton, and he walked up to her patio door, pulled the handle, and it was locked. So then he tried all of the windows, and they were locked. And so he walks up to the door and ends up making, like, eye contact with Jeannie. And she just kind of, like, stares at him, and she's, like, trying to figure out what he's doing because she'd watched the whole thing, watched him go from door to window to door to window. And she sees a disheveled, long-haired man staring back at her, and that ended up being Richard. And so he just stares at her. She stares back. He lights a cigarette, and he walks away. We later find out that Richard said if a door is locked, it means you aren't welcome in their home, which is creepy on so many aspects because you're not welcome in somebody's home unless they invite you in. But the fact that he's like basing it off for whether or not somebody's door is locked is just, I don't know. It's creepy to me. Yeah, especially when you consider it obviously where where they're located, you know. People probably are locking their doors for the most part. But like, I don't know how many cases we cover where it starts like, it was a safe place. Nothing happened. No one even locked their doors. Like, to think of it that way. Ugh. It also reminds me of the the Strangers movies, which was based off a true story where... And I don't know if this part's true, but at the end, they kind of ask, like, why are you attacking us? They're like, well, you answered the door. And it's that same kind of, like, the factor where it's just so much chance and this small thing could have changed something. Not that it was your duty to change it, but it's just, it's really spooky. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, it's always a good practice to keep your doors locked. However... There are killers that also break into locked doors. So, unfortunately, the same night, Richard did end up finding a door that was unlocked. And this home belonged to Robert and Barbara Edwards. The positive to this scenario is that they were not home at the time that he found their door unlocked. So, he went inside and he started grabbing a bunch of valuables from their house and basically robbing them. And when they returned home, they saw somebody come out of their rear window and Robert Edwards chased Richard as far as he could. But Richard ended up leaping over a fence and getting away. They did report this immediately and detectives had gone to the house to check into it to see if they could determine who had robbed them. But during the process of examining everything in the house and determining what valuables may or may not have been taken... They also realized that Richard had urinated in a drawer and defecated on their son's bed. As I mentioned, Richard did escape, but he was still active that night. So he went up to a woman named Nancy Holden outside of a shopping center. And she reported that an unkept man approached her. She thought he was homeless. And so she started talking to him. And then he asks her, Were you on the motorcycle when Kurt was killed? And Nancy was really taken aback by this because 10 years ago, she had been dating a guy named Kurt who ended up dying in a motorcycle accident. So she knew that he had the right person, but she was confused as to why he was connecting her to that because she had no idea who this man was. So it wasn't until Richard told Nancy that it's me, Rick Chase... And Nancy was like, oh, I know who this is, but he doesn't look anything like I remember him looking. 
So apparently, if we go back to school-aged Richard, he was actually a friend of Nancy during school. But Nancy reported that Richard was nervous, he seemed to be wanting drugs, and his clothes were ridden with stains. So she kind of came up with some excuses to to try to get away from him because she realized she probably shouldn't be hanging out with him. And she starts to walk back to her car, and Richard ends up following her to her car and asking for a lift. He's like, please give me a lift somewhere, anywhere. And Nancy's like, no, and then quickly hops in her car and drove off. A few days later, on January 23rd, 1978, Richard Chase had gone out again looking for an unlocked door. And in doing so, he found the unlocked door of Teresa Wallen, who was three months pregnant at the time and home alone. Teresa was taking out her garbage when Richard arrived, and he ended up sneaking into her house And then when she came back inside, he attacked her with the 22 he had previously used. And in doing so, a bullet hit her palm and then the second bullet went through her skull, which immediately killed her. As we've mentioned, Richard was very violent and he ended up acting out a lot of really disturbing fantasies with Teresa. He raped her. He mutilated her. He removed different parts of her body. And he ended up drinking her blood. Teresa was found by her husband and he ended up reporting this situation to the police, to which the police were obviously concerned. And they were kind of noticing a pattern in the string of these horrific attacks. And they were not able to determine who had been committing them as there had been few eyewitness sightings. And for those that had been able to point him out, didn't necessarily know that he was also the one committing these horrific crimes. So the police realized that it was too much for them to handle and they reached out to the local FBI to help take down this killer. If you guys want to come back for part two of our episode covering Richard Chase, Abby's going to be telling us about the other victims of Richard along with his trial and later life. Thanks to listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. All of our sources can be found in the show notes for each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also support us by recommending us to friends and family, giving us a good review on Apple Podcasts, or subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.